You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Relationships. I remember this dating relationship I had back in high school. It was one of the first girls I ever dated. I think I was about 16. She was maybe 15. And uh, I was pretty into this girl. I felt like, um, you know, things were going along pretty well. We'd been dating several weeks. We both worked at Frisch's Big Boy together. <laughs> You'd often find us over by the, the little cake, uh, cake display case, laughing, talking, getting ready for that dinner rush, folding napkins. You know, doing the things that people do when they're, when they're in love. <laughs> and, um, you know... At a certain point, maybe a month into that relationship, all of a sudden her demeanor toward me changed completely. And, um, you know, after this month of romantic bliss, we just started getting to all these conflicts, couldn't get along with each other. I didn't understand. Nothing like this had happened in the first several weeks of the relationship. So I don't know what to do. I... I was wondering, do I just, is there something wrong with me? Do I need to work harder at this relationship? Do we need to bring somebody in to help us resolve things here? And um, as it turns out, it was none of the above. The problem was, she was into another guy. I know. And not just any guy, my best friend. I know. And he was into her. So it didn't matter how much I worked on that relationship because another love had come into her life and she just threw away everything we had worked for <laughs> to go for this other guy. And I wasn't feeling too sorry for him when she did the same thing to him after only two weeks. <laughs> okay, what's the point of my story here? Uh, well, for one, high school is a weird time. But also, that no matter how hard we worked on that relationship, no matter how hard we tried to get at the conflicts that were happening there, there was a deeper problem. There was something that needed to get worked out if these, these conflicts were going to get worked out. And that's got relevance for our study of James. Why is that? Well, because James has been confronting his readers with their ongoing fighting with one another. Remember at the beginning of three, how they were harming one another with their words? And then he talks about these, these selfish ambitions and desires in your hearts, and there's disorder and all kinds of conflict happening at the end of chapter three. Well, tonight, he's going to take things a step deeper. He's going to go a little deeper as to what is the thing behind the thing? What is the problem behind the other problems that they're having? Now he gets down to the heart of it all. And what is that? The problems in their relationship with each other come from a problem in their relationship with God. And what is that problem in their relationship with God? The problem is another love had come into their lives. That is the problem. The same thing I was facing as a 16-year-old high schooler in my dating relationship. This is much deeper, much more profound. Their relationship with God, they had, they had fallen in love with something else. And James is going to teach us tonight about what that was and also about a thing called spiritual adultery. So let's read, starting in James chapter 4, verse 1, James asks, he says, what is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? He's been talking about it for a while. 
He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? He says, you've got all these desires raging inside of you. That is the source of the problems. And, you know, we like to think the problem's out there. The problem's in my life. It's my circumstances. It's the other person. It's my job. We, we're always putting the blame out there, and I don't really have anything to do with this. And um, Jesus said the opposite. Remember James, he is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He knew the teachings of Jesus backward and forward. And a lot of the teachings in James, you really have to understand the Gospels and the teaching of Jesus in order to understand what James is talking about. And here he's quoting from the teachings of Christ. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus was always having this clash with these religious people, known as the Pharisees. And these guys were like the spiritual heroes of the day, but Jesus was pretty grossed out by these guys because these were, these were religious people. They were into rituals. They felt like, I'm a very good person and God's lucky to have me. They didn't understand grace. They were modeling all the wrong things for people. And they actually thought the problems with sin in their lives, it didn't come from within them. The problem was they were out in the public marketplace and they had bumped into some sinful people. And it's almost like the sin germs had been transferred to them. And this is why before they would eat, they would do these special ceremonial washings of their hands, not from the Old Testament, something they came up with, because they're washing the sin off their hands because they're worried the sin might get on, you know, their falafel or whatever, and then they would eat that. <laughs> And then the sin will get into their body. And so they're, then they're criticizing Jesus in Mark 7. They're like, why don't your disciples wash the sin off before they eat? And Jesus says, you really think that's your biggest problem? You think the problem is you might have walked through some air that a sinner had walked through and some sin cooties had been transferred? No, that's not your problem. Jesus says, everyone listen and try to understand. So he's emphasizing his, what he's about to say. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You're defiled by what comes out of your heart. That's the problem. The problem lies within. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. These are, these are coming from within. We, we're broken. We're not the way God designed us to be. We've all turned away from God. Live in a broken world. And so we can see glimpses of what we should be, but we also see fallen humanity like a beautiful picture that's been, just, that's been just tarnished and ruined. And so Jesus says, that's your problem. Your problem is from within. And James says the same thing. He says, the problem is it's coming from within you guys. There's something wrong on the inside. And if you think about it, he says, the problem is the pleasures waging war in your members. How many friendships have been destroyed by the pleasure, pleasures raging war within us? How many marriages? How many families? You guys probably saw your own families torn apart by parents who they were just raging with, with different desires and they weren't being met by the other person. They weren't being met by you. They weren't real happy with you. And so what you had is butting heads and tearing each other apart. Desires for sex, desires for comfort, come in the way of our relationships with each other. Desires for money, for stuff. I want that. No, I want that. How many families are torn apart battling over uh, the estates, battling over inheritances? Desire for respect. I just want to be respected around here. I'm not being respected. Desire for fairness. It's, how about some fairness? And uh, I mean, maybe some of have seen addiction as well. Desire for those drugs. Desire for that drink. Can't stop. Everyone, everyone else fades out until I get my fix. 
And James says, we've, we've all got these desires waging war. And he says, this is particularly a problem for his readers. They had not come to grips with this. James says, you lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. They probably weren't literally murdering one another because if they were, the Roman authorities would have gotten involved there. They would have put a stop to that. Now, he's probably, again, quoting Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount seems to come up again and again in James. Jesus opened this category. He says, you know, you've heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Yeah, those religious Pharisees were feeling pretty good about themselves because they hadn't committed murder. And Jesus says, well, have you ever gotten angry in your heart? Um, That's enough to send you to hell. And so he's setting the bar back up where it belongs. He says, you you just, just be perfect like God is perfect all the time for your entire life. And part of what he's trying to do is he's trying to show them their need for grace. He's trying to show them that they're not good enough. They've fallen short and that they can't walk in with their pride but they need to humble themselves. And unfortunately, James's readers, a lot of them grew up looking up to these Pharisee types. And they had, I think, absorbed some of those values. And so he's trying to show them, trying to remind them of Jesus' teaching, that the bar needs to be back up here. And then he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so then we're suddenly moving. You know, he's talking about their relationships with one another and their problems there. And all of a sudden, he switches to prayer. And he's talking about not just their relationships on the horizontal plane, but their relationship on the vertical plane. And he says, there's a problem not just in your relationships with each other, but that flows from your relationship with God. And our our broken relationship with God is the source of the problems we have with each other. And James says, in some cases, you guys aren't even asking. You don't have because you don't ask. Jesus said again in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, ask and it will be given to you. And sometimes we're so focused horizontally on what this other person did to me and what I need to get from them and what they're saying I did and I definitely didn't do that. We're in a state of pain. We're in a conflict. How often do we even turn to God? Yeah, God wants us to talk with him when we're in conflict, when we're in trouble, we're in, when we're in pain. He, he, wants us, he wants that to actually grow us closer in our relationship with him and sometimes we just need to tell him, what, I, what do I really want in this situation? A lot of times we don't have because we don't even ask. Instead, we just try to solve it ourselves. We're taking, we're exerting our will in this situation. We take it. We, we do whatever needs to be done in order to get what I think that I need. Instead of coming humbly to God, letting him define what I need, letting him meet some of these needs I'm trying to demand other people meet. Yeah, he says, some of you guys you just don't have because you don't ask. Jesus says, he says, like, like dads with their kids, he says, even you fathers, even though you're evil compared to your heavenly father, you love giving your kids good gifts. How much more do you think your heavenly father loves giving his kids gifts? And so sometimes the problem in our lives is simply we just haven't asked. And we haven't kept on asking. The, the sense here is continual, continual present tense. And so a lot of times it's not just once, but there's in an ongoing way where we're bringing our requests to God and then we're allowing him to meet them as he sees fit. It's it's an act of submission. But sometimes we ask and we don't receive and there are a few qualifications we need to understand here. If we're asking but we're not getting, one, one thing scripture tells us is we need to ask according to his will. Jesus says in a few places, you need to ask according to my, ask in my name, which is according to his word. 
John says it even more clearly. He says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And he goes on to say it. If he hears us, then we already have the thing we asked from him. He's granted it. And so this is where learning God's word is important. This is where talking with God, there's, there's a lot of great situations that aren't explicitly totally spoken to in his word. And so part of what we're doing is we're trying to get a sense from him as to what his will is in this situation. Then we begin asking more in line with his will. But James gives us another reason too. He says, sometimes you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. These pleasures. Well, part of what James is saying, oh, and on these pleasures, remember, Remember how the, the source of the conflicts among them, the source of the fights among them was the pleasures that wage war in your members? He says, this is also becoming a problem in your relationship with God. These, these super strong desires, these over-desires, these are, these are having an impact on your prayer life, on your, your relationship with God. And so, you know, one of the things God sometimes just doesn't answer because there's some things that wouldn't be good for us to have. We're asking for things. You think about the, the toddler begging the parents for more candy, more candy, more candy. Eventually the parent has to say no. That kid's going to ask for candy until they get so sick they puke. And then they might turn around and ask for some more candy. They don't know any better. They don't know what's good for them. And that's why parents need to set some boundaries and to give the kid not what they want, but what they actually need. Because that's what they really want anyway. Part of the desire of the parent is for the kid to grow up, to be a responsible, self-controlled adult. You know, the health and wealth gospel says, if you just name it and claim it, I, God, in faith, I claim the winner of this lottery. In faith, I claim a brand new Porsche, and you will have it if you have enough faith. Well, that's not what James is saying. He says, one of the problems is you, you're, you're asking for things because you just want to spend it on your own pleasures. You know, a lot of the prayers... We sort of sound a little bit like toddlers. We're asking God to remove all the pain in our lives. There's a painful situation and we want it gone now. And God knows that's not what we need. It's just spending it on our pleasures. No, I mean, what, what would happen if God immediately moved all pain from our lives as soon as we asked him to? We would be so wimpy. We'd have no empathy or sympathy for anyone else who's suffering. We would never grow. How are we going to grow in endurance if there's nothing to endure? Wasn't that his point in James chapter 1? He says we need to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials because those trials produce endurance. And endurance has to have its perfect result that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's no pain, no gain. We talked about this in James 1. But... Um, demanding God remove all the pain in my life, that, that would not be very good for you. You think about these astronauts, you know, when they go into outer space, um, their muscles, you don't realize how much you use your muscles, but these guys, they've got to do like leg presses every single day with rubber bands and things like that. Otherwise their muscles will very quickly atrophy away to nothing. Is that what we really want? To completely atrophy away to nothing because there's no strain at all in our lives? No, God is trying to toughen us up. He's trying, to, he's trying to make us people who are more like Christ. And suffering is one of the ways he does that. So some things just wouldn't be good for us to have if we ask for it. And God says, I love you too much to give you that request. Um, here's another thing that wouldn't be very good for us to have. As soon as I pray it, I get it. And I always get what I want without ever learning to pray. There's a learning process. 
where I'm praying, I'm talking with God about this thing, and I'm talking with him about over weeks and months or even years, and I'm watching this prayer quest develop, and I'm watching him answer it, and I'm asking questions, and I'm incorporating some of his answers into what I'm praying next. It's a very cool relational process. It's growing in our, our relationship with God is what prayer is. If we got what we wanted immediately, we, we wouldn't really learn how to pray. There'd be no motivation to. I could see myself very definitely taking the answer for granted because I got it too quickly. I might think, oh, I guess that would have happened anyway. I might think, oh, I guess I did that myself. And what God wants us to do is sometimes he wants us just to pray, 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 keep talking with him about this thing, and um, we still don't have it, and we're just realizing there's no way I'm going no to get this done, and then he gives it to us. And that's a pretty cool experience to have. Sometimes it takes a little while for us to move over onto his will as well. Remember what Jesus prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That's a prayer we need to pray as well, where we're moving our will over onto the will of God. Again, this is an act of trust. It's a relational thing. I'm saying, I think you know best, God. I got some ideas, but you're the one that knows best. Not my will, but yours be done. And part of what will happen is sometimes God will change your request as you pray over time. Like where initially I'm praying that God would not let this bad thing into my life and then he lets this thing into my life and then I'm like, I guess that wasn't God's will. And then it's like, well, I pray that I would be able to endure, that I have the strength to endure. I pray that I can, I can glorify you in this trial and I start to realize, oh, that's actually what God wants me to pray. And so the request changes as events unfold. But it's all a very relational process. It's a relational act. Over time, we're talking with God. We're growing closer with him. We're growing more like him. We're receiving from him. He's giving us that peace that surpasses all comprehension, as Paul puts it in Philippians 4. And so it's, it's a very cool process. Uh, it's a humbling process. It's a place of joy and peace. It's a place of rest. Jesus said, come to me, all who worry, and I'll give you rest. It's not about what getting I want. It's about getting what he wants. That's what prayer is. And here is where James turns on his readers. He says, these pleasures, these are affecting your relationship with God. And in fact, the problem's a lot worse than you guys think. And sometimes, sometimes we're in that situation where we're kind of deceived and we don't realize how bad the problem is. All we know is that I'm just, I'm a mess. My relationships are at odds with each other. I'm not happy. There's, we can maybe admit there's something wrong between me and God, but we maybe not necessarily are ready to say that. And James just comes out and says, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoa, didn't see that one coming. What is this adultery where... Where is James calling every single one of his readers an adulteress? And what does it mean, friendship with the world, a friend of the world? We need to examine these concepts. First, we need to look at this term for the world. This is the Greek world word, the cosmos. And this can refer to a number of different things. It's a pretty broad word. It can refer to outward adornment, like cosmetics, that same root, cosmos. He talks about women putting on their cosmetics in 1 Peter 3.3. It can refer to an orderly life, which is actually a, a really positive thing, a requirement for leaders. Our life needs to be well-ordered, not just a mess, not just chaotic. 
It can refer to the entire universe, the ordered creation out there. And the, world, the universe is very orderly, all kinds of laws. The universe follows because God is the ultimate reliable lawgiver behind all the laws of nature. And uh, the, the, the universe, that's a good thing that God created. He called it good. It also refers to all humans, like in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. And so here we see God loving the world, and yet then in James 4, he's talking negatively about the world. So he, can't, he must not mean all of, all of humankind. Now, this is actually a, a fifth definition, the one that's used uh, negatively whenever it's used in Scripture. And I'll give you a definition, and then we'll kind of flesh it out with some Scripture. The cosmos that James is referring to here is the cosmetically beautiful and orderly, so it's got elements of those other definitions, system, it's set up by God's enemy, Satan. And its goal is to seduce us away from God and God's values, to get, keep us from thinking about eternal things and to distract us. For example, in 1 John 5, he says the whole cosmos is under the control of the evil one. And so there is a system set up by God's enemy. It was set up after um, humans rebelled against God. And, and this world became broken. That's, that's the point where apparently it was set up. And um, Jesus talks about the cosmos quite a few times. He says to God the Father, he says, I've given my disciples your word, and the cosmos has hated them. Because they're not of the cosmos, even as I am not of the cosmos. And so you see like these two different realms, these two totally different parallel systems here, where Jesus is not of the cosmos, but the cosmos hates him and it hates people who follow him. And so this is why um, he's warning his disciples of the hostility they're going to face, simply because they're his followers. First John is probably the most complete passage on this, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, don't love the cosmos nor the things in the cosmos. Because if anyone loves the cosmos, the love of the Father is not in him. Yeah, it's like there's only room in our hearts for one love. Love for God, the Father, or love for the cosmos. We are limited. We are finite beings. And the problem with the cosmos is it offers only three things. A craving for physical pleasure. A craving, yes, these cravings. I like the word craving NLT uses because it sort of implies it's cravings just make you crave. It's like it just stokes the desire even more. It really doesn't fulfill the desire. And this would be sensuality. This would be some of us love the wild, sensual pleasures. Others might love the more calm, comfortable ones like sitting in the hot tub, looking out over my estate. Not that there's anything wrong with hot tubs. There's all kinds of pleasure-seeking, physical pleasure-seeking. A lot of the things we pursue, though, is this. I think this is maybe a little true when you're younger, but um, there's elements of this that go throughout the entire life. Pleasure-seeking and relief from pain. And again, God created pleasure. He's not against pleasure. But the problem is when that pleasure becomes top thing. He also says there's a craving for everything we see. Or the lust of the eyes, it says in some of our translations. Yeah, this would be the desire to possess beautiful or rare things or even to have a, a beautiful, you know, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, um, amassing wealth. 
owning beautiful things, a beautiful house, beautiful works of art. Uh, body culture would be the lust of the eye. This is I want to be totally ripped and have that eight pack. Um, the cosmetic surgery. Um, this is, uh, boy, how much of our days are spent craving for the, what, James, what John calls the lust of the eyes, the, the craving for what we see, the craving to be beautiful and possess beauty. God created beauty and gave us the ability to appreciate it. This is not something the animals have. This is not, your dog is not admiring a piece of art. This is unique about humans in the image of God, but the problem is when that desire for beauty becomes first place in our lives, when it becomes our God. And finally, something that John calls the boastful pride of life. And this is whatever's not caught in the other two. This would be a desire for fame, desire for respect, desire to be important. I want to be the greatest of all time. There's all these arguments, who's the greatest of all time in this sport or that sport? I want to be remembered. Because when you think about it, we forget about people pretty easily. Even the most famous sports stars today, people aren't going to remember them 40, 50 years from now. Name a sports star from 40 or 50 years ago. Probably can't name too many. Um, Name a famous actor from 60 or 70 years ago. Probably can't name too many. But we don't care about that. We're just trying to be somebody. We're longing for significance, and that's a longing God put in us. But when we try to get it apart from him, that's the problem. And so these subtle messages, they're, they're pounded into our heads. Um, they come from every angle. You see, advertising sort of plays on the world system to get us to do things. Here's, a, um, a, here's one advertisement. There he is, your new brother-in-law. You like him. He's one of those guys who always smells good. His five o'clock shadow is always at five o'clock. You like him. Your mom says he's done really well for himself. He has stocks and bonds. Your dad wants to go fishing with him. Your dad doesn't even like fishing. You like your brother-in-law, but you'd like him better if you made more money than he does. (laughs) Don't get mad at your brother-in-law. Get (laughs) E-Trade. Well, you see it all there, right? The, uh, he wants, you know, the guy looks good. He's got the beautiful wife. Um, he also owns a lot of money. Um, he also, everybody likes him. Your mom likes him better than you. Your dad likes him better than you. Um, you, can see where, you can see where love of the world is going to have an effect on our relationships as well. You can see the, the linkage that James is making here. Because there's so much competition when it comes to the world system. And um, so much of what I need, I have to take from other people. And so he's sitting there with a smile on his face, but with envy in his heart. And wasn't that the problem in James's audience that we've been, we've been studying the last couple of weeks here? You look at famous actors and actresses and musicians, and they testify to the emptiness of the world in their honest moments. Josh Radner said a few years back, I had bought into the, notion, the not uncommon notion that when I taste success, when I get over there, then I'll be happy. But the strangest thing happened. As the show got more successful, I got more depressed. Wow. The world promises the opposite. It promises happiness and fulfillment with fame and money. Mm, that wasn't his experience. Eric Clapton. Here's what he says. One of the most famous musicians of the 20th century. He said, I had everything a man could want. Even back then, 
I was a millionaire. I had beautiful women in my life. So we got lust to the eyes, lust to the flesh. I had cars, a house, an incredible solid gold career and a future, the boastful pride of life. And yet on a day-to-day basis, I wanted to commit suicide. Huh. Well, that's not what the world promises that you'll get. But that's what you'll get. John Lennon, it's hard to imagine a more famous rock star than him ever. As a Beatle, he said, we made it and there was nothing to do. We had money, we had fame, and there was no joy. Huh. Well, that wasn't probably what they were looking for. They probably would have traded the money and the fame for the joy and the happiness. Russell Brand, actor, (laughs) he said, I thought it would be good to be rich and famous. It would be good to have money. It would be good to be invited to the party. Well, I've been invited and I've seen the other side of the looking glass and it ain't worth it. It doesn't fill your soul. I still feel empty inside. Yeah, Jesus warned us about this. James did too. The world offers only, this is all the world offers, is craving. You want more craving? You want your cravings to get bigger and stronger? Or are you looking for something that'll fulfill that craving? You're looking for the thing that you were designed for. That, what you're designed for is a relationship with God. Yeah, all these things are not from the Father, but are from this cosmos. And here's another big problem with the cosmos. It's fading away along with everything that people crave. That's the thing about a craving. It's always fading. Any, any meeting of that craving and the world, the cosmos itself is fading. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. And so you see this contrast between the temporary and the eternal. There's nothing wrong with enjoying pleasure, admiring beauty, or seeking significance. In fact, I'd I'd go even further than that. There's something very good about enjoying pleasure, admiring beauty, seeking significance, if it's done the right way. Sometimes Christians make it sound like you can either be happy or you can follow God. And that's actually opposite. The happiness is all on God's side. He's the one who invented happiness. He's the one that put that drive in every one of us, and we will always seek happiness. And so as long as we're thinking that way, we're doing our spiritual lives. No, he invented pleasure. He invented beauty. He invented significance, and he wants us to have as much of that as possible as long as he remains at the center. Yeah, it's when we seek these apart from God or when they take precedence precedence over him and his values. This is where I'm so busy seeking those things, I don't have time for God. I'm so busy pursuing them the way I think they should be pursued that I haven't bothered to ask him what he thinks about how to pursue these things or just to ask him to give these things to me. We don't have because we don't ask. And it's fading away along with its cravings. Yeah, you know, this is how we're inclined to view our lives. We're born. And then we have this period of our life where we're growing up and we're going through all these, you know, changes as we get to adulthood and all these new experiences. And then we... You know, maybe we go and get a career and then we work to build up a career and perhaps we try to build up a family and we're living our lives and we're accumulating stuff and we're so busy with all the living of life and accumulating of stuff and the seeking, the the pleasures as much as we can and the significance and the security that before you know it, we get to the end of our lives and it all flew by. And what did we all, what did we do it for? What was my purpose in living? If that's all there is, I guess that's probably a pretty good approach. But God views your life from a very different perspective. Here's how he sees it. Here you have on the left, you have birth. And then that next line, 
that would be your death. And everything we just saw can be squeezed into that very instant, that moment, that very short time that is your life, which will be over very soon. And then the rest is eternity. And that goes on way off the right side of the screen. Now, imagine if there was a way to transfer from that little sliver on the left over to this eternal period on the right? What if, we could, what if we could actually move treasures over? What if we could move stuff over? What if we could lay up treasures in heaven? That's what Jesus said to do. He said, don't store up treasures here on earth in that little left sliver. Moths are going to eat them. Rust destroys them. Thieves steal them. And whatever they leave, you're going to die. Store your treasures in heaven. That is the safe investment. He goes on, he says, no one can serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. You can't, you can't live for both sides of this timeline. You can enjoy the one on the left and live for the one on the right. That is possible. That's, that's the ideal. But you can't serve both. You can't serve the temporary and the eternal. It's one or the other. One has to take precedence over the other. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And that's what James is saying here. And that's what John is saying as well. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then James says, he doesn't just talk about the world, but he calls them adulteresses for being friends with the world. They're being all friendly with the cosmos. Christians want to do that. And, and, and he calls them adulteresses. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, so when you look at the Bible, one of the pictures God picks for our relationship with him is a marriage. There's a lot of pictures, but this is one of them. And when the Bible describes the end of human history as we know it, it describes the great wedding feast, the marriage between God and his people, that oneness that is, is kind of foreshadowed in marriage is fully realized in a relationship with God. That's any longing we have for marriage is ultimately a longing for that. What scripture says is once you enter into a relationship with Christ, you get betrothed which is a stronger word than engaged. Our engagement, you can break it off at any time. You just have to notify the other person and maybe give the ring back. I don't know. I guess that part's optional. In ancient times, betrothal was as binding as a marriage. You had to get divorced to get out of a betrothal. And so this is a serious commitment. And typically what would happen is the groom would, would give some gifts to his bride. Like scripture says, he has given us the Holy Spirit as a pledge, as a promise. And then he, he, go, he would go away to prepare a place for his bride. A lot of times he would build an extra room or a whole house onto his father's estate for them to live. And then he'd come back for the bride. Well, that's what Jesus said when he left. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Same imagery. He will come back for his bride. And he, he said that many times. And a lot of times the bride, she knew like the general time, but she didn't know the exact time he would show up. It was sort of like a surprise, you know. But the groom would show up with all of his friends and the trumpets would blast and then he would take his bride and he would bring her back home. And there'd be a long marriage celebration, a, a feast that would last a whole week. But imagine this. Imagine the, the husband goes away, the groom goes away to prepare a place and the bride just starts dating some guy. How awkward would that be if the groom comes back <laughs> and she's on a date with the other dude? She hasn't thought about him. She hasn't done anything to get ready for the future. She's been living for now. 
This would be adultery. This is how they would have viewed it in ancient times as well. You couldn't just marry somebody else if you were betrothed to the first person. And this is talked about a bunch of places in the Old Testament. Spiritual adultery. Jeremiah is a pretty good example of it. He says, look at the shrines on every hilltop. This is where they would go and worship their, the, the, the gods of the surrounding peoples. Jeremiah says, is there any place you haven't been defiled by your adultery with other gods? And so this worship of other gods was depicted as adultery. They're cheating on God. And a lot of times it also involved actual sex because they would, part of their worship was having sex with the priests or priestesses up there and that was supposed to like fertilize the crops, you know. He says, you sit like a prostitute beside the road waiting for your customer. You pretty much sleep with any God that comes along, God says. You polluted the land with your prostitution and your wickedness. And yet, look at what God says. Even, I mean, God is so grieved that he's being cheated on. And yet, he says, oh, Israel, my faithless people, come home to me again. For I'm merciful and I will not be angry with you forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. Admit you rebelled against Yahweh, your God. You committed adultery against him by worshiping idols under every green tree. My wayward children, come back to me and I will heal your wayward hearts. And God is not doing this because he's some pathetic guy who will just take whatever. It's because he knows fully what you've done and he's poured out the judgment on his son. And he is willing to open his heart back up to you again. This is why James says in the next verse, probably, it's a little hard to interpret this verse, but he jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. This is, jealousy is usually bad, but sometimes it's used of God as a good thing. It's like, like if my wife started going on dates with some other dude, and I was like, oh yeah, whatever. I mean, what would that say about my, me and my love for her? No, I, I, I should be upset about that. He says, come back to me and I'll heal your wayward hearts. Yes, that's what God wants if we've drifted astray. Yes, we're coming, the people reply, for you are Yahweh, our God. Our worship of idols on the hills and our religious orgies on the mountains are a delusion. Only in Yahweh, our God, will Israel ever find salvation. And that's true for you as well. It's only in Yahweh that you will ever find salvation. Spiritual adultery. You know, God freely offers you this relationship with him, and that guarantees your eternal life, forgiveness forever, and so the question is, why not live the rest of your life for God? Why not wait for the, you know, get ready for the coming of the groom, for the great marriage that will last forever? Well, it's because, a lot of times it's because of the cosmos. This is what distracts Christians. And the goal is not to get you to deny God outright. A lot of Christians that lose it, they don't become atheists. They just become not in love anymore. The goal of the cosmos is to steal away your love that you once had for God. And it's often slow and pretty subtle. It's not the wild sins that people think of. It's a lot of times it's distraction. I'm too busy. I don't have time for that anymore. I, I just don't have as much time. Life is busy. Our people are busy. Jesus tells a parable about this guy that sent all these invitations out for the wedding of his son. Clearly God the Father is that guy. And they start going around, and the guy's like, eh, I can't make it. I just got a new field. I got to plow it. The guy's like, oh, I just got some new oxen. I got to go uh, work, work them out there. 
Third guy's like, oh, I just got married. I can't come. And so what is it that keeps these people from the banquet? They're not hanging out down with the prostitutes. They're just busy. Bought something. New uh, relationship. That's the thing that gets in the way. Isn't that the thing that often gets in the way in our lives? Is that what's been getting in the way for you? Is that the thing that's been standing in your way and slowly eroding your love for God? Yeah, signs of seduction. What would be some signs? The things of God losing their excitement? Yeah, that's what you'd expect in somebody who's uh, losing their love for their spouse. Spiritual events become a burden. I'll do it, but only as a duty. Following God feels very restricting. If I'm being seduced, we start looking for like-minded people. Like tends to attract like in these situations. You want other people that are into the same value system that you are. Our thought life becomes obsessed with the things of the world. Anxiety begins to strangle us. Our worldly goals, our, our bank account balances, we're consumed with anxiety. We become self-deceived as well. We, you don't even realize it. If you don't feel the tension, that's actually a, often a bad sign. We also become self-deceived about how much we used to be into following God. We say, oh, I always felt this way, when that's not true. There's no spiritual fruit being born by somebody who's worldly. And spiritual depression sets in. And the answer could be, you've become in love with the world. And you're deceived. And James's critique would apply in this situation. What should I do then if I find myself being seduced by the world? What do we do? How do we get out of this situation? Well, I hate to say this, but a lot of Christians end up in this place. Those of you that are walking with God, if you lose it over the course of your life, it'll probably be for this right here. Seduction by the world. This is one of Satan's most effective tactics. And you just sort of fade out. But James gives us some advice. What does he say? First of all, you've got to understand God gives a greater grace. God gives extraordinary grace. This is the, the spurned husband taking back the wife who's been so ungrateful. And he's, this grace is greater than any, anything else that could stand in the way of us turning back to God. God. God is behind this effort to restore the relationship. And so it says in Scripture, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yes, humility is the starting point. This is the place to begin if you want to tap into that grace, that power of God, that grace to give you the insight, the strength to get back on course here with God. But we need humility. And we don't need to be all like, I know it all, and this couldn't happen to me, blaming other people for my problems. You've got to take full responsibility for the situation that you're in. He says, submit therefore to God. This is some of those prayer points earlier where we are coming under and we're saying, God, you know best, I don't. I don't even, I'm not even trying to get myself out of this situation. I, I want to do it your way. I want to follow you out of this mess. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't believe the lie that God's enemy will never relent, that it's hopeless. Resist and Satan will back off. This is what we saw from Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. The temptation lasted for a time and then he left him until a more opportune time. He'll be back. 
but we need to be ready for that as well. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Yeah. Why not sit down and talk with God? Why not talk? Why not have a heart tie? Stop looking around at all the people around you and what you're supposed to be doing and what my duties are and whether or not people are going to yell at me and just focus on God. Get away, turn off your phone, get, get somewhere quiet and just talk with him. Tell him what's been going on. Some of us, we just are, our lives are a mess. Relationship with God's a mess. We need to have some dealings with God. This is where it begins. It's an attitude of the heart. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's using language kind of of the Old Testament here. Purification language. Your hands and your hearts, both what you're doing, but there's also an internal piece as well to this. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Again, this is, this sounds kind of weird and like, but God doesn't want Christians to be walking around mopey all the time. No, he wants us to be happy and joyful, but there are times where the reality of my sin breaks in on me. We see this at major turning points in the Old Testament where the people just realize I've been off track for a long time. And there's, there's kind of this mourning. This is kind of Old Testament style repentance here where they're expressing, I need to get things turned around. And this might have been kind of offensive for James' uh, self-righteous readers, but he's hitting them with it anyway. There's times where I just realize I've been such a jerk for months now. And I didn't realize, I thought the other person, these other people were the problem. I've been so hard to be around. And these people have loved me. They've put up with me. They've stuck by me. That, as that breaks in, I've been brought to tears. But even in the midst of that, even, even though he says, turn your joy to gloom, there's still like an underlying joy to the whole thing because it's, there's the joy of knowing God's grace covers this. And that God loves me and that God has stuck by me. And finally, he returns again to humility. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. Again, there's that drawing near. Talking with God and he will exalt you. God will lift you back up. He'll set you back up on your feet. I know you've fallen down and you've been down for a long time. God wants to put you back up. And God even wants to raise you up as a trophy of his grace. So the cosmos, in conclusion... We can't get away from it. Some Christians try to just be like, well, I'm going to flee the world altogether. That's not possible. It will follow you. It's a value system. We can't get away. Jesus says, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but they, they remain in the world, but you keep them, keep them from becoming like the world. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to be salt and light in a flavorless society. We need to be the light in the dark place. But don't underestimate the subtle pull of the world. This is when you get into the ocean in a strong under, undertow, a strong riptide, and you, you look around, all of a sudden, I'm a quarter mile down the beach. You didn't realize it. This can happen. Some of us here, we just need to begin that relationship with God. That's the beginning point. This is where we come into that relationship where we get betrothed, where we get guaranteed spot at the wedding feast of the lamb but others of us need to admit we've drifted away and we need to start taking our relationship with God seriously and finally the best protection against spiritual adultery 
just like the best protection against adultery in any, any normal marriage, is to work on the relationship, to invest in your relationship with God. And as we do that, then what that will do is that will, that will keep us from being pulled away, deceived, seduced by the world. And then we've got spiritual adultery in the cosmos. Yeah, God, I don't know how far turned around and confused I would be, Lord, without your intervention in my life. Deceived, pursuing temporary values, Lord, not, not thinking about eternity. Thank you, God, that you speak the truth into our lives and you help us to wake up from the slumber we've been in, Lord. Thank you that you give a greater grace. Thanks that you long for us to turn back to you and you will mercifully take us back if we will just admit we've gone astray. Thanks, too, that that relationship with you, um, you're not sitting there shaking your head at us and giving us the cold shoulder, but you are the loving father waiting for the son or daughter to return from the distant country. And I, I thank you, Lord, that you want us to be ready when you return and, you're doing, and, and your power is behind that. And I pray for those of us here who just have never come into that relationship with you, Lord. I pray that, pray they would do that here this evening. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.